2: Seven billion
3: people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April
2: Callahan. Cass, I bet I am not the only woman who sometimes struggles planning out what to wear while traveling. No, you are not. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, it's, it's not really what to pack, but what to wear on the plane. You know, you want to be comfortable, but you also want to be chic. Uh, I recently was appalled when I was on a flight and saw a young woman in her 20s wearing pajama pants and <laughs> slippers on the airplane. And, and this was a domestic flight of a few hours. We're not talking like a 12-plus hour trip halfway around the world.
3: I know, or there's the people that take their shoes off mid-flight. You always have at least one of those <laughs> in your vicinity. I mean, it's yep. the 21st century, and dress codes have relaxed a lot. I mean, people wear jeans to the opera. Although, I feel like I remember hearing last year that an airline actually kicked someone off of its uh, flight for being improperly dressed. Did you hear about that?
2: Yes. United Airlines banned two young girls from boarding a flight because they were wearing leggings. Ooh. Um, The girls and their father were traveling on a non-revenue fare, a.k.a. a buddy pass, which are basically like passes that airline employees can gift to their friends and relatives. But the company cited the dress code that non-revenue passengers may not wear, quote-unquote, form-fitting pants as the reason for not letting the young girls (laughs) on the plane.
3: It's interesting. I mean, I guess all airlines have dress codes that they expect their employees and, by extension, friends and relatives of their employees to follow, but some are more fashion forward than others. I have to say, I had a very fashionable recent Delta flight experience. And not only were there movie and TV offerings that were chock full of fashion documentaries and shows about fashion, the flight attendants were dressed to the nines in their Zach Posen uniforms, and I was super impressed. I mean, this sort of designer airline collaboration is very rare these days.
2: Yes, and, but, but historically, there have been quite a few of them. Emilio Pucci did um, the uniforms for Braniff in the 1960s, and also Cristobal Balenciaga designed the air hostesses' uniforms for Air France in the 1960s. Ooh. So, you know, in the days of yore, stepping onto an airplane was something special, you know, an occasion to dress up for. And in the first half of the 20th century, women passengers and flight attendants alike generally
3: wore a jacket, skirt, hats, gloves, and even heels for air travel. Which begs the question, if women passengers and flight attendants were dressing up to take flight, what were their pilot counterparts wearing? So today, fashion historian Catherine Dorney joins us to discuss how the first female pilots or aviatrixes dealt with the intersection of fashion and flight. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome, Catherine.
2: Thank you for joining us today on Dressed. Thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. It's
4: my pleasure. I'm so excited to be discussing this topic with you.
2: Yeah. Um, before we get to our aviatrixes, or as in my mind, I've now renamed them ladyatrixes. <laughs> um, can you give us a general sketch of the earliest days of flight? Who were the players and when did this all take place? I love that
4: new title. Um So while there were a lot of people who were trying to make some sort of a flying machine, in 1903, the Wright brothers created the first airplane and the first flight lasts about 59 seconds in North Carolina. So in those early days, flying was still rather precarious and even dangerous, resulting in many deaths. But by the 20s and 30s, it had become much um, safer and accessible, easier for everyone to kind of experience themselves. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And and pretty much overnight, these early male pilots, we have to say, they were media sensations, and the public just couldn't get enough. What was it about this new technology that kind of captured the public imagination?
4: Well, it was so new. It was this new technology. It was a totally new sphere. Um, Until then, it was really only— birds that could fly in the air. So to be able to uh, capture that was something so outside of the realm of anything that had been experienced before. And the public was really drawn to this sense of adventure and movement and freedom. Um, Flight really connected the world more globally because Mm -hmm. it was faster and more convenient to fly than to, for example, take a train or take um, a boat. And uh, even if the public was too scared themselves to fly, they were still really fascinated with the idea.
2: Mm -hmm. And and it's my understanding that initially some of these greats, like you mentioned, um, Orville Wright, they were not exactly too encouraging to some of these first women Mm -hmm. who were looking to learn how to fly themselves. Um, Can you speak to this? And what did flying mean to some of these early aviatrixes who, who pushed through this glass ceiling?
4: Yes. So when uh, a woman approached Orville Wright for lessons, he uh, actually refused and told her that women were too nervous to fly. (laughs) I know, right? We're Uh,
2: hysterical.
4: (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the aviatrics conveyed both this sense of adventure and glamour. They were challenging gender norms. They were challenging kind of the conventions of the day. And it's also interesting to note that later into the 30s and 40s, airplane companies were actually hiring a lot of women in their sales departments because it gave the buyers this sense of security about the machines. Mm-hmm. Kind of a, if women felt comfortable flying in a plane, then it must be safe.
2: Right. So so outside of some of these social expectations or gender norms that they were kind of violating, some of the other challenges that these early aviatrixes faced were of a more practical nature. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And what, what were some of these earliest female passengers and pilots wearing during flight?
4: Well, as many of us have probably seen in photos of early airplanes, the first planes were very breezy. They yes. were open machines,
2: yeah, open um, cockpit.
4: Yes, <laughs> um, it was cold. There was no air pressurization, any of that. Um, so, and it was also a time, the beginning of the 20th century, when um, clothing wasn't made for these conditions and propriety said that women couldn't show anything really above their ankles. So some of the first women to fly in a plane, um, just as passengers really, uh, would tie a rope around their skirts just above their ankles, and they'd tie a scarf around their head to keep their hats on very practically. I love that they're just, you know, still wearing their hat. Oh, of course. (laughs) Well, you wouldn't take your hat off during the day. (laughs) So you have to make sure it stays on your head. Right. So some of the early aviatrixes who were, you know, actually flying the planes were kind of just making do. Um, They were either wearing ill-fitting men's flying suits or they would cobble together some sort of their own outfit uh, there weren't really a lot of options on the marketplace intended for women pilots. So sometimes they would adapt clothing intended for other sports, such as auto racing. And many of them would end up wearing Jodhpur pants and leather coats with lots of pockets in them. Mm-hmm. One early aviatrix named Harriet Quimby commissioned a plum-colored flight suit for herself, which oh, wow. gained her quite a bit of attention. Nice. <laughs> um, and air travel, as we can expect, was really all about practicality in dress, but women still wanted to look fashionable, especially professional pilots who were trying to bolster the image of air travel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially during this time, there was still a high expectation about how women would present themselves. And luckily, the aviatrixes caught on pretty quickly and were smart to use that to their advantage. Mm
2: -hmm. And fashion magazines were even weighing in on this, right? Including Vogue?
4: Absolutely. Uh, Women's magazines included plenty of articles about air travel, things like what to wear while flying, both as a pilot and as a passenger, flight etiquette, makeup, what to pack. Makeup. I love that. (laughs) Of course you need special makeup, when flying. (laughs) And while Vogue is obviously much more fashion-focused, they were really aware of the excitement over this sport of flying. And even in 1936, they uh, featured an article interviewing aviatrixes for advice on how their readers could start flying themselves. Mm. And aviatrixes were also writing some of these articles. For example, Amelia Earhart was an editor at Cosmopolitan Magazine for several years oh, on well, the subject of air travel. Yeah, That's
2: really cool. So, like, capitalizing on the trend. It's, Absolutely. It's, like, the hot new thing. Yes. Um, in terms of visual culture, Hollywood was actually also instrumental in establishing this sort of concept of fashionable flight attire. You know, we have lots of films about aviatrixes in the 1920s and the 1930s, we have the Clara Beau silent film Wings in 1927. Mm-hmm. Marlene Dietrich was in Dishonored in 1931. And one of my all-time favorite actresses forever and ever and ever, <laughs> Myrna Loy in the film Wings in the Dark in 1935. I mean, she is, in my mind, she's the most beautiful woman that's ever walked this planet. Um, <laughs> and, it would hard be hard to argue with that. Yeah. yeah. And 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 there are other. I think that Catherine Hepburn was in a aviatrix movie mm-hmm, as well. Mm-hmm. Um so, what were they generally wearing in these films, and and how did films like these change the trajectory of women's sportswear at this time? Yes,
4: yeah, so I actually have to mention, uh, you brought it up. Katherine Hepburn starred in Christopher Strong, which mm-hmm. is my favorite of these films. Nice. But these movies all featured strong female leads who were daring and independent. In these movies, it's really interesting to see in the different scenes the balance between that lead actress in adventurous clothing like flight suits or Jodhpur pants and a thick Leather jacket, and then also scenes with her wearing really glamorous, fashionable clothing, kind of sending the message that women can be both daring and elegant. And mm-hmm. I think this was kind of the first time that women start to become seen as multidimensional and um, being able to be multiple things at once and mm-hmm. not just kind of
2: pigeonholed. Interesting, especially in, in in the in the the arc of like Hollywood film. Absolutely. So while these sirens of the silver screen were lending their star power to the spread of aviation-inspired fashion, so too were the pioneering aviatrixes themselves. And and you make a point that many of them were just as famous as the movie stars themselves. Mm -hmm. And we're going to learn more about that right after this word from our sponsor. Welcome back. In your work, Catherine, on these early female pilots, you have focused on three of them specifically. The first one being Eleanor Smith, And she was really fascinating. Can you tell us a little bit about her? She is. So Eleanor Smith took her first flight at
4: six years old and really became consumed by flying after that. She was the youngest woman to receive a pilot's license from the FAA at the age of 16. Wow. And that license was signed by Orville Wright himself. So I guess he did get over his bias (laughs) uh, against women flying. And she was um, really a driving force in the acceptance of women pilots along with some of the others, But she was the first woman to be featured on a Wheaties box. And she lived into her 90s, actually. She lived quite a long life. And up until kind of those last years of her life, she even worked with, like, NASA. Wow. Um, So really paving the way for kind of all sorts of travel as technology evolved. Different sorts
2: of aerospace exploration. Mm -hmm. Um, She was nicknamed the Flying Flapper. What was her relationship with fashion, and how did it fit into her public Mm -hmm. persona?
4: So this is one of my favorite stories, which is how she got that that title. In the fall of 1928, after a man um, attempted and failed, Smith decided that she wanted to try and fly down the East River of Manhattan and fly under each of the four bridges oh that cross that river, <laughs> which now probably doesn't seem as daring. But at the time, um, the precision of airplanes was not the same as it was today, so it actually was uh, a little bit dangerous. But despite the windy day, she was successful in um, this attempt. And she had only received her license a few weeks before this, so she really could have been suspended for the stunt. So she was 16. She She was, yes. (laughs) But luckily, she wasn't suspended. Um, She, uh, The mayor of New York intervened, and luckily, she just had a a 10-day grounding. (laughs) So, she, Smith was not exactly what we would probably call fashionable. She didn't care too much about clothing further than it was functional for her in flight. But she really did fit the idea of a flapper, which I hope your listeners will recall from your episode several weeks ago.
2: Yes, if you haven't, go back and listen to it.
4: Definitely do. Uh, She was young. She was ambitious. She was breaking with the norms of the generation before her. So, she really embodied that idea Mm -hmm. of the flapper. She was asked by several brands to model for their print advertisements. She went on to be the aviation editor of Liberty Magazine, and
2: she had a weekly radio show with NBC. Wow. So she, she was not the only aviatrix to be courted by brands, including fashion brands or the press, um, for celebrity endorsements. There, there, there were others. Can you speak to this a little more? Well, designers were really
4: inspired by air travel and flight at this point, and they were inspired by the idea of this daring woman who was actually flying. She was the epitome of the modern woman, and aviatrixes um, would be asked to perhaps design a dress for a clothing maker, um, market that dress, clothes that could be both functional and properly feminine. Aviatrixes would be spokespeople for different brands or styles. Um, one aviatrix, Ruth Elders, uh, attempted to recreate Charles Lindbergh's transatlantic flight uh, wearing an outfit designed by the Haute Couture designer Jean Patou. Nice. Jod purrs, a long sleeve button down shirt, striped socks, and a scarf around her head. So, again, um, understanding this idea that. Um, these aviatrixes wanted to be fashionable in order to be mm-hmm. taken seriously. And it wasn't just in fashion that uh, designers were inspired by air travel. It was used to sell all sorts of items. Perfumes at the time uh, alluded to flight. One was called night flight, another called <gasps> en avion. Um <laughs> And famous AVIatrixes were used as spokeswomen for nearly every kind of product on the market. You even found an advertisement in Vogue for all these AVIatrixes advertising uh, nail polish, different colors for each one. Yes, yes, yes.
2: (laughs) I'd like to turn our attention now to perhaps the most famous of the AVIatrixes. I'm talking about Amelia Earhart, of course. How did she begin flying, and what were some of her specific accomplishments?
4: So Earhart actually started as more of a hobbyist. Um, She was a social worker by trade um, who liked to fly, but it wasn't her profession at first. And then in 1928, she was asked to be be the first woman on a flight across the Atlantic Ocean. She didn't actually fly the plane at all during that trip. She was just a passenger and kept the flight log. But regardless, it catapulted her into instant fame. Um, During her rather short career, she set dozens of records, but she also worked really hard for the collective acceptance of women flying, encouraging more women to get their licenses, setting up an organization for aviatrixes called the 99. It brought together all sorts of um, women from across the United States and even the world um, in order to advance
2: these women being accepted. Mm -hmm. So it was like a professional organization, basically. Yes. We are going to take another short sponsor break, but when we come back, you mentioned these super long flights, and I have a burning curiosity. (laughs) How are these ladies going to bathroom on these flights? More on this in a moment. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries?
3: So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
2: Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone.
1: One
2: of the things that struck me most when I was doing some research for this interview is that it was remarked upon that when emerging from the plane, a lot of these women who had been, you know, doing these long-haul flights, that they reeked of urine, (laughs) which is something that I had never really given thought to before. But, of course, you know, how were they dealing with this issue um, of these types of bodily functions while they're in in their air? And, 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 like, what was that relationship to their clothing?
4: Well, yes. As you can imagine, airplanes in the 20s and 30s didn't have the fancy bathrooms that they do now. And many of these flights were long. That first uh, transatlantic flight that Earhart took was almost 21 hours. Wow! So um, they had to deal with this in a variety of ways. Obviously, the men couldn't more, much more easily, um, relieve themselves in a jar or of some sort. Mm-hmm. Women not so easily, um, and these spaces were really small, um, so it didn't give them a lot to of of space to move around. Um, air sickness was also an oh. issue, um, <laughs> again with with no pressurization. So some women did, um, especially were drawn to the back flap in a flying suit uh, that could be taken down (laughs) so that they were able to relieve themselves. But there still wasn't a lot of space for
2: that to happen. Yeah, yeah. Well, all of this would make a um, change of clothes sooner rather than later critical, I Mm -hmm. imagine. Mm -hmm. But it is my understanding that on some of Amelia's earliest flights, she didn't even carry a change of clothes because she didn't want to add additional weight to the plane And instead, she borrowed outfits from women on the other end of her destination. And and because of this, sometimes the media remarked on her ill-fitting clothes. (laughs) You know, what was the media critique of Amelia's early style? And how did this affect her development in using fashion to court press attention? Because she eventually really did.
4: Absolutely. As you mentioned, weight was a major concern on these flights. The lighter the plane, the faster it could go. So, um, Earhart- usually didn't bring an entire suitcase. Um, On that first flight she took, she just had a hairbrush, I believe, (gasps) um, and the clothes she was wearing. So she did uh, land in England and luckily uh, there was someone there who had some clothes for her that she could change into and um, again, because she became so instantly famous, a lot of stores and brands there uh, gave her clothes to wear. But again, yes, they were ill-fitting because she just needed them right then and they couldn't be tailored to her. And as we've been mentioning, you know, there was still sexism in this that women needed to look a certain way to be taken seriously. So especially after that uh, transatlantic fight that she was the first woman on. She um, was critiqued by the media for having disheveled hair. Um, she had her hairbrush. <laughs>
2: Still, after 21 hours of yeah, flight, yeah, 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 yeah. your
4: hair's not going to be, like, on
2: point. I don't I don't want to see a photo of myself after I get off the plane Absolutely when I fly not. to Asia sometimes. <laughs> no.
4: <laughs> so, at this point in her career, she was not very concerned with fashion or her appearance, but she quickly learned that by dressing well, she could be taken more seriously, um, as sexist as that is. Again, Charles Lindbergh was never criticized for his hair after a right. long flight. <laughs> um, and it really did work. In 1935, the uh, Fashion Designers of America voted Earhart one of the best-dressed women.
2: Oh, wow. That's amazing. I, I only recently learned of the fact that she had her own fashion line. Can you tell us about this? She did. So in
4: 1934, um, Amelia Earhart started her own fashion line called Amelia Earhart fashion, appropriately, Um, she was really hoping that it could be used to fund her flying. Um, She didn't grow up incredibly wealthy, and so she really uh, had to fund herself um, in flying. So Earhart uh, was not really into shopping. She Mm -hmm. um, didn't enjoy it, and she hated ruffles, anything too frivolous. So she hoped that by creating this line, she would also um, create something that would embody the idea of kind of sportswear. Mm -hmm. Um, So her line included 25 outfits to be sold at medium prices. Many of the fashions, such as a windbreaker and a leather trench coat, for example, mimicked her flying clothes. And they were made from a lot of um, emerging textiles, new innovations that uh, had more of a sportswear feel. Mm-hmm. And she first was, de- she was kind of the first designer to market separates so that a woman could um, buy a suit in different sizes. She could buy the jacket and the skirt oh, in different sizes. And therefore, it would not need as much tailoring, which would. Uh, help with the cost. Mm-hmm. Um, let's just remember that 1934 is still the depression. Right, right. And then her line really had these special touches of something characteristic of aviation, such as a parachute cord um, as a tie or a belt, a ball bearing belt buckle. Um, <laughs> I there's <love> that. <laughs> there's yeah. one dress that has kind of like airplane wheels in, as a pattern on it. Mm-hmm. Um, The Henry Ford Museum has um, one of the the hats from this collection that has a zipper across the top with a little airplane airplane propeller pull. (laughs) It's very cute. Um, So it's interesting because these clothes were actually offered at one department store in each city, and they were created in these um, special Amelia Earhart shops. So Uh, like little
2: pop-up shops. Yeah, little
4: pop-ups. And it was kind of the first time that that had ever been done. Um, and then the label in each garment featured Earhart's signature mm-hmm. in black, with a thin red line streaking through it, with a little red plane soaring into the corner. Yeah. Um, so it really was capitalizing on her name notoriety. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, because it was the height of the Depression, the collection only lasted one season. It wasn't super successful. But she also did license her name to a lot of other products, uh, including Luggage, which was sold until the 1990s even. Wow.
2: Wow. That's that's incredible. Mm-hmm. Who knew? I learned things making this show every week. <laughs> um, I'm guessing that our listeners are going to be less familiar with our next pioneering female pilot, but Catherine will you tell us a little bit about Amy Johnson and and why she was or is important?
4: Amy Johnson was a British aviatrix. She was the first woman to complete a solo flight from England to Australia in 1930. That's a long flight. Very long flight. There were stops along the way, okay. but she okay. she was the first person to to take that journey. Um, or the first woman, excuse me. She went on to set many more long distance records. Mm-hmm. Uh, So after Earhart was criticized for her disheveled hair, uh, Johnson made an extra effort to be sure her hair was always perfect when disembarking from the cockpit, and she had this short hairstyle that became known as the Amy Johnson wave in Australia and was highly requested across the country after her famous flight. (laughs) Um, Johnson actually was quite fashionable, and she did care a lot about how she looked, but she also did need her flight clothes to be functional. Um, Because she was setting distance records, she wasn't as concerned with her flight time and therefore wasn't as concerned with making her plane as light as possible. Mm. So she always brought her full makeup kit with her. Uh, Sometimes after a long flight, she would even land several miles before her final mark in order to fix herself up so that when she landed in front of the media, (laughs) she would look her best.
2: I love that. That's amazing. Mm. She had a rather unique style, and she actually had a direct connection to haute couture. Would you enlighten us about that?
4: So she was actually good friends with Elsa Schiaparelli, who designed a collection for her, and um, they kind of had a little media day taking photos of her in this collection. Uh, It would include tailored suits in navy, black, and white. White was actually a really popular color in aviation at the time, as it furthered the idea that air travel was clean and luxurious. Modern, very, very modern. Yes. Right, right. And then it also had uh blouses in these bold artistic prints, which Scaparelli is also known for, of course. But um one in particular uh that that Amy Johnson wore included a design that was covered in postage stamps. Yeah. Um, and the Met actually has a version of it in its collection. But um, the postage stamp obviously directly connects to travel and this idea of movement. And Scaparelli was really inspired by Amy Johnson and flight in general um, and created this uh, portable, lightweight outfits that – it, johnson could really easily take with her in her
2: cockpit yeah and it's like you know we think of like travel capsule wardrobes yes. now as being something that's like you know pretty much run of the mill but at that time this was something new really. absolutely and and, and um, johnson's end much like Earhart's, was rather tragic when and how did amy johnson die So, Johnson
4: was part of the Air Transport Auxiliary during World War II. This was a British civilian organization that helped the military by ferrying airplanes that had been repaired back to the battlefields. Mm. And during a flight in 1941, she was thrown off course by bad weather and ran out of fuel. So, she bailed out of her plane and landed in the North Sea right near the River Thames. And she died, although her body was never
1: recovered.
2: Mm. So in many ways, these women's, women were presented or even mythologized in the press as heroines. You know, you've mentioned that the organization that Johnson was flying for was a civilian one. Mm-hmm. So she wasn't actually technically part of the of, of the military, but she was working on part of the war effort. You know, what, what role does this archetype of adventurous play in, in crafting ideals of what it meant to be a newly minted modern woman?
4: Well, we definitely have to remember that the 19th Amendment, which gave some women the right to vote for the first time, was passed in 1919. That's not much before this kind of time period we're talking about. Yeah. So many women were enjoying this new sense of freedom, um, and flight was really parallel to that feeling of freedom, Um it was really this idea that the woman had control over her life; that she could go where she wanted to go, she could do where she, what she wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And fashion designers were really grasping onto that idea as well. Many of the big designers at this time, like Scaparelli, as we mentioned, Chanel, Lanvin, Poiret, Patou, they were all designing for this modern woman, emphasizing the idea of movement that's newly possible during this time, both um, physically at the you know body level, but also. Um, internationally.
3: Mm-hmm. Yep.
2: Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. Catherine, thank you so much for joining us to speak about these badass babes and their relationship between
3: fashion and flight. Thank you so much. I hope that yes. your listeners enjoy it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. April, it is a sad fact that many of these pioneering aviatrixes met an untimely death in their pursuit of flight, but I guess at least there's comfort in the fact that they perish doing what they love. I mean, for many of them, flight meant freedom, not only in the literal sense of travel, but also the license to really challenge established sexist ideologies on the limits of women's mental and physical stamina.
2: Yeah, and as we know, when gender norms are challenged, it never fails that dress gets pulled into the mix. Nope. And it's very interesting to learn how these early female pilots dealt with the subject of fashion. You know, due to their daring nature of their hobby or profession, once they stepped into the media spotlight, this really opened them up to criticism that they were behaving like men and, in some cases, dressing like men. So many of them saw fashion as this tool to combat their critics. A coiffed and elegant appearance really underscored the point that one not needs to sacrifice one's femininity in order to boldly traverse new territories
3: and indeed that we can have it all. Well, that does it for us this week, dress listeners. Perhaps you will consider the legacy of the aviatrixes and their influence on the sportswear in your closet next time you get dressed.
2: And do not forget to tune in to our new Thursday edition of Dressed, which we call Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners. You can either direct message us on Instagram or
3: email us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, follow us on Instagram for images supporting each week's episode at Dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle. You can find us on Facebook at Dressed Podcast without the underscore. And we always post recommended readings for each episode on our website, dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at teepublic.com forward slash
2: dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. You can find totes, mugs, T-shirts, sweatshirts, and tons of other fun dress merchandise. And last but certainly not least, thank you to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes Dressed possible
1: each week. Catch you soon. Bye. When everyone's on the same page, getting things done at work is easy. No matter what you do or what industry you're in, how you communicate is key. Everything you type is equally important to collaboration, and Grammarly can help. Think of it as your AI writing partner You can also save time from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds with one click. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot slash podcast. Easier said, done.
0: Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or Mc Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day.